I was literally opening my safe to get some classified documents and a classified hard drive when the plane hit the building. We had executed uh, two or three evacuation drills. Each organization had a specific point where they would meet up outside the Pentagon. Ours was immediately outside the child care center. And then we were told that there was another plane uh, heading towards DC. And that was the one that ultimately uh, was taken down by those uh, tremendously brave people in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Since our gathering point, our meeting point was right outside the child care center, we actually uh, went in there and getting, getting cribs and young children, moving them away from the Pentagon, all the way to the very outside of the parking lot. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing David Komar. David is the president of EDA Inc., a top-of-the-house human capital firm helping companies build a compelling company culture that will last. He is also an international keynote speaker, an author, and a retired U.S. Army general. Prior to founding EDA Inc., David spent 31 years in the U.S. Army in a variety of leadership positions, retiring as a brigadier general. You can learn more about David at edainc.io. Let's listen as Jeff talks to David. Dave, I'd like to welcome you on the corporate couch this afternoon. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. Been looking forward to this. Yeah, very excited. I mean, 31 years in uh, service for the Army. Uh, and uh, so thank you for your service. Well, I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about that career. But you also have a book coming out on culture. Uh, and that's one of my favorite topics in uh, corporate America. So uh, very excited to talk to you today. Let's start with a fun question. Um, even those people that know you a little bit, Dave, what what would surprise them about you? Do you have something you're hiding? <laughs> I think that uh, one thing that would that would surprise people is that I probably haven't traveled, even though I've spent 31 years in the army and I've been to quite a few countries. I probably haven't traveled to as many countries as as a lot of people would think. So you grew up in upstate New York. I'll have to ask you, have you ever been to the Empire State Building? I have. Okay. Just wondering, because a lot of people, especially people who live in the city, they, they've never been to the Empire State Building. <laughs> well, that's funny because I was stationed at the Pentagon three different times during my military career for a total of eight years. And the time when we would actually go see most of the sites was when people would come to visit us. Exactly. Other than that, the, the commute every day, all week long, just would get become such a grind. Last thing you wanted to do is get in the car and get in traffic on the weekend. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I grew up a little closer to New York City than you did, but uh, about an hour. But uh, I had never been to the Empire State Building until my kids were about six and eight. And we came from, went on a trip from Kansas City to New York, and we got to go to the top of the Empire State Building. Very fun, but uh, it took me a long time to get there. So you grew up in upstate New York, Elmira, I believe. What uh, what was fun for you growing up, Dave? My dad worked in management for one of the public utilities in New York State. And we moved around every two or three years or so. I think we've lived one place four years. So it, it kind of got me ready for a career in the Army of, of moving around. And of course, back then, if you couldn't ride your bike there, you might as well have moved to the other side of the world because it wasn't like... Uh, you know, you'd be able to see your old friends. You, you, you certainly weren't going to make a long distance phone call, which today is something I think is 
completely unknown to people. The fact that there are there used to be long distance calls and you'd call people late at night or on the weekends because it was cheaper back then. Uh, oh, yes. So so we moved we moved around a lot, but uh, really enjoyed spent a lot as much time as I could outside growing up, uh, just exploring around. We never lived in a major metropolitan area, so you know there there was always woods or a creek or something else nearby that that we could explore. So that I really really enjoyed that. Lived again mostly in small towns, so you know it really gave you opportunities to participate in things that you might not have been able to participate because there was just, you know, too much competition in, you know, in that specific area, whether it be music or sports. Sure. Uh, so you went to college in Lafayette College in Pennsylvania, Eastern Pennsylvania. What what drove you from upstate New York to uh, Lafayette? First of all, it was a great, great school, still is a, a great school. In fact, I probably couldn't get accepted into that school uh, today with the, the way the competition is for my dad was actually a graduate of 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 uh, lafayette he was a first generation american both of his parents immigrated from what's now the very eastern part of Slo slovakia uh, they came over to uh, his dad worked in the tanneries at endicott johnson shoe factory and so he was able to get an academic scholarship in in high school to Lafayette City, so attended there, but uh, really enjoyed my experience there. In fact, when I was the first couple of years I was there, Larry Holmes, the Eastern Assassin, was still the undefeated heavyweight champion of the world until he lost to Michael Spinks. And again, being a fairly small town, it's right on the Delaware River, about an hour or so north of Philadelphia. But you'd see Larry walking around town. He bought several businesses, he fixed up quite a few of the buildings. You know, this was you know, early to mid eighties. So the economy in that area was, was particularly bad at that time. Uh, so it was very interesting. He used to, uh, what the first Saturday of every month, he, he had renovated the, the state theater in Easton and he used to hold what it was called Larry Holmes presents. And it was, I don't know, probably eight or 10 card fight, uh, fight card there. And it was primarily fighters from his, that trained in his gym there in Easton. And, Joe Frazier would bring guys from his gym up from Philadelphia and, and it was great. I think it was cost like $3 or something to get in and you could watch some, you know, some, some guys that were just really just sort of starting out their careers. And, you know, some of them, you, you know, you'd see them on TV like, you know, years later. So it was a, it was a, it was a great experience there. Made a lot of great friends, people I'm still, uh, still in touch with. In fact, some people I do business with. Yeah. So, um, did you? I know you graduated in a, with a uh, a BA in uh, business and economics. Was that your original major? No, I originally originally started out as an engineering major. I was an electrical engineering major, and I think a combination of being able to explore different areas and other interests and. Uh, my uh, failure of uh, differential equation to master differential equations, I think, uh, put the end of my my engineering academic career. But had a fantastic experience there at Lafayette as an economics uh, and business major. Yeah, I I love that you use uh, differential equations in a sentence still today. I mean, I I was a business major in uh, my in information systems. So if you were a hot, hardcore person, you did computer science not you know information system that was the business you know kind of computer degree back in the day so uh and i went to manhattan college in the bronx and it was a big engineering school and trust me i had less work to do than the engineering majors <laughs> um, well i can still use it in a sentence because you know, occasionally i'll still wake up in a cold sweat with an exam paper in front of me yeah do you still have the dream that you forgot to drop that class and <laughs> final was the next day because <laughs> i do <laughs> um so you were in uh the reserve officer training corps the ROTC at uh, lafayette what was the what was your decision uh to do to pursue that dave well i always knew i wanted to serve you know i, I mentioned that my my father uh, his parents being immigrants to this country. My mother's also an immigrant to this country. And my dad 
mentioned, you know, he went to Lafayette and he had a, you know, successful career, very successful career working for New York State Electric and Gas. I mean, we really lived the American dream and I, I just wanted to give back. I really didn't have any intention on staying, you know, maybe, you know, I think I was a, I was a non-scholarship cadet, so you could tell what kind of student I was, but so I think I had like a three-year active duty commitment and I went to Germany. I figured, Hey, this would be a great opportunity to travel and, and, and see Europe and also to be in an or, in organization there. You know, this was still Cold War. Europe, you know, organization has a mission to, to, you know, to fight anytime should, you know, should the need arise. So that's, that's really why I pursued it. And it, you know, it, it just kind of turned out that 31 years, 31 years later, retired as a brigadier general. And I, again, I just kind of made decisions along the way. Uh, there were several other times I thought I was going to go do something else. And the Army gave me an opportunity uh, to, whether it was a promotion or an opportunity to go to school, those types of things that I, you know, kind of tipped the scales in the Army's favors for me staying in the Army from that perspective. And was it always going to be the Army? Did you look at any other uh, branch of the service? No, I think it was, I think it was always going to be the Army. All of my dad's brothers, they all served. I think he had one uh, brother, my uncle John, who'd served in the Navy during World War II. Um, and I think every all of his other brothers were in the Army. My dad uh, spent some time in the Army as well. And uh, in fact, uh, he, was, he graduated from Lafayette. He went through ROTC there. And a guy named Bob Edwards, with whom my dad played lacrosse, and they were in ROTC together. In fact, they were in the same fraternity together. Uh, Bob Edwards uh, has a fairly prominent role in the book, We Were Soldiers Once and Young, that uh, General Hal Moore wrote. Uh, it was later turned into a movie, uh, We Were Soldiers Once. Wow. Um, yeah, so when you graduated, you basically went right into the Army as a platoon leader, right? So it looked like you simultaneously or in parallel, you uh, also uh, were getting your master's uh, in arts and, and management from Webster. Is that kind of the. Yeah, it was a little bit later. I was a I was a pretty fairly senior captain at that time uh, that, that I, I was in an organization that. I was able to I was able to pursue it. Webster is. Is that is that, gosh? I'm trying to remember how many different installations they're on, but they you know they have satellite campuses. So I was at I was at Fort Jackson, South Carolina at the time, in Columbia, South Carolina, and uh, what was nice was they had courses. I think they only went like seven or eight weeks, and they were very condensed courses, so you could kind of pick one up, and then maybe two or three terms when we were out training National Guard units in the summer, we wouldn't be able to take courses, but then, you know, could, could take some later on. And the army gave me an opportunity at the end of my degree, towards the end of my degree to just take six months and go to school full time to finish my master's degree. What was a big surprise for you going from like ROTC at Lafayette to being a platoon leader? Like it has to be something, you know, you know, real world-ish that was like, oh, wow, I didn't realize this. You know, I had phenomenal uh, cadre who are you know active duty army leaders, both senior non-commissioned officers, senior sergeants, and captains and majors in our in my ROTC program that really did a phenomenal job of preparing us. In in fact, while I was in the army, rarely a day would go by that I didn't think about something that one of them had told me or I had seen them do or you know, or some experience from that. So they did as, as good a job as they, they could, but there is nothing that can prepare you for being put in charge of an organization, you know, of, you know, 40, 40 to 50 young, back then young men, because uh, field artillery was not open to females at the time, only that only happened here recently, uh, whose, literally whose lives uh, depend on the decisions you make. And that's a that's a very very sobering thing to think about, and being there really on at the time Freedom's Frontier, 
uh, right behind the Iron Curtain, just west of the Iron Curtain, uh, having uh, going up to the the uh, Czechoslovakian border, uh, conducting reconnaissance of the first positions and the subsequent positions that, according to the battle plans, your organization was going to occupy, and really having to think through that, um, identifying. All right, if we leave when we leave this position, you know, what route are we going to take to the next position? Uh, you know, where can we resupply if we take casualties? How are we going to evacuate them? Things like things like that. So there's there's really no substitute. I don't think there's anything that can that can prepare you for having that level of responsibility you know, thrust upon you uh, willingly. But when you put that on your shoulders, uh, there's really nothing to prepare you for that. Dave, what do you think the Army, I mean, and obviously, you know, it's gone through many iterations uh, you know, over its history here, but I mean, what do you, what's the kind of the secret to them being such a great teacher of leadership? At the root of their the Army's success is the fact that it's an absolutely positively deliberate system and process that they follow. Are there some ways they could do it differently and it might might be better? Sure. You, you know, then the Army's always adapting how they conduct leader development, how they train and educate leaders with, within the Army, rely on external resources, you know, graduate schools, things like that. Uh, but it's a deliberate process from the day a soldier, whether they're an officer or whether they're enlisted, from the day they report to that very first training assignment all the way through to their retirement there's a very uh, deliberate and defined set of schools experiences self-development opportunities that are that are designed to move that individual from where they are up through up through the rank structure and, and the Army commits a tremendous amount of resources. We, we take, you know, for instance, you, you look at a brand new soldier, their first day in the Army, they report to their basic training unit. They're, they're going to be trained by Army drill sergeants who are selected as some of the best non-commissioned officers that the Army has. As we realize the importance of and the difficulty of the task of turning a civilian into a soldier and as well as the fact that you know, that individual is going to be their very first impression, their very first idea of what it is to be a leader in the Army. So, they, so the Army commits you know, some of its very, very best people and a lot of resources to ensure that soldiers are, tra soldiers are trained at all levels and that they receive the necessary leader development throughout their careers. Yeah, so you're talking about resources. So it looks like just based on your background in the army, and you know, 31 years, you know, two um, tours of uh, I don't know how many tours of duty, but you're a veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. So thank you for your your service there and protecting our our, our freedom. Um, what what job, what role did you have where you had the biggest budget? Because it looked like you had some huge budgets that you were in control of. Yeah, so I, you know, I had a few. The very, you know, in control is a sort of a loose, you know, kind of I'll use that loosely. But my very first job in the Pentagon, I was a major, and I had never been outside an Army brigade before, which is an organization of about three or four thousand people down at the tactical level. And I was in an organization called the Program Program Analysis and Evaluation Directorate. What we did was we identified what the Army's resourcing plan was going to be for the next six years. Uh, so, you know, I had a little piece of that. I had some areas, specific areas that I, uh, it was my responsibility to provide the analysis so that the Army senior leadership could make, you know, the, 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 have the information that they need and the analysis they need to make the best decision. So that, you know, collectively our organization, you know, had like again had a tremendous um, influence over the entire army budget 
for a six year period of time. Um, and, you know, my last job in the Army, I was the, the director of capability development for the Army. So everything from boots to helicopters, medical field dressings to, you know, to tanks, uh, we were responsible for developing the requirements. What did that piece of equipment, uh, what did it need to be able to uh, provide a soldier is, is with respect to capability and to make sure that they that they all would, would not only work together, but move the Army on a continuous modernization plan from where it is today to where you know, we wanted to be uh, 20, 25 years from now. Any particular capability gap, there's always many different ways you could solve that, but some ways will help you move from where you are to where you're trying to get to more effectively than others. Some might actually even be a step backwards, even though it's solving a you know a near term a near term problem. So we we're responsible for developing those requirements and prioritizing the entire Army modernization budget, which is about twenty five billion dollars a year. So those were probably the biggest. I was the director of Army business operations for a couple of years at the Pentagon. That was my first assignment as a general officer. And, you know, one of one of the things that that we did was we were responsible for the business initiatives that were introduced to the Army Business Council and looking to industry, to academia, to see what was really best in class uh, processes and, and procedures and policies out there that we could scale to the Army. There's a lot of interesting things that companies, even a company, you know, big companies, say Microsoft, there's things that they do that don't necessarily scale to, you know, 1.2 million people in 132 different countries at any given time, where at any time someone's literally someone's life could depend on on having a specific uh, resource that they that they need. Wow. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, uh, most guests, you know, don't have that <laughs> type of budget. Um, so uh, I know you said you had a couple different stints in different roles at the Pentagon. Were you uh, were you in the Pentagon um, role in 9-11? I was. I was a major in the Army Program Analysis and Evaluation Directorate. And in fact, it was working you know, at my, at my desk and, you know, we had these sort of like four cubicles that were, uh, that were together. And there was uh, another officer that I was working with who had just gotten off the phone with his wife. And I couldn't hear what, I, I couldn't even understand. I couldn't even hear or understand his side of the um, conversation because he was, he was speaking in Spanish and when he got off the phone, he says, yeah, he goes, uh, my, my wife just told me that the, the second plane had hit the other World Trade Center towers. We had already heard about the first one. And uh, so it became pretty clear right away that you know, this wasn't some sort of aviation mishap, uh, that it was, it was uh, definitely a deliberate attack. And then um, I, was, I was literally opening my safe to get some classified documents and a classified hard drive that I kept in there uh, for working on sensitive materials uh, when the plane hit the building. Providentially, I would call it our organization, because we hadn't done it in probably over a year. In the month prior, we had executed, I think about two or three, I think it was three uh, evacuation drills where we would leave our office, uh, we would go to each organization, had a specific uh, a point where they would meet up outside the Pentagon. Ours was immediately outside the childcare center and you know, take accountability, figure out who's there, who's not there, if anyone knows the, you know, where people were. And, and this was, you know, this was, you know, cell phones weren't as ubiquitous as they are today. It wasn't like everybody had a cell phone. And even if you had one inside the building, depending upon where you were, you really couldn't get much, much coverage. So, um, so, 
you know, we, we fortunately we had we had a uh, an individual that worked in our very close close uh, small group in our office uh, who wasn't there, but he got outside in another part of the building and and was able to call our our colonel, our boss, uh, and identify that. And then we had we were told that there was another plane uh, heading towards D.C. and that was the one that ultimately uh, was taken down by those uh, tremendously brave people in Shanksville, Pennsylvania who uh, sacrificed their lives to save many others. Since our gathering point, our meeting point was right outside the child care center, we actually uh, went in there and started uh, uh, t getting getting cribs and young children and uh, you know moving them away from the Pentagon uh, all the way to the outs the very outside of the parking lot and uh, to a there was actually a park. Uh, right there, right off of the uh, Potomac River, and uh, fortunately, uh, that that you know that plane was uh, was taken down, uh, albeit at the cost at the cost of all those uh, uh, all those uh, lives on board. Yeah, I mean, I I can't even imagine. Um, I had a, a, two close friends that uh, worked in a satellite office of 17 people in the North Tower and 15 of the 17 lost their lives on 9-11 and they happened not to be in the office that day. So it's just, you know, and yeah, when you talk about, you know, the plane that was heading for the Pentagon and, you know, that whole, you know, how it was documented, what they did, just incredible. I mean, so, yeah, I can't even imagine. Just to, to link back to my experience in ROTC in college, uh, on that day, uh, one of my former cadre members, he's now who's then a colonel, uh, Mark Volk, he worked in the Army G3, the sort of the operations arm of headquarters, pardon me, the Army, uh, where the, the plane hit uh, just below uh, where near where his offices were. And he went out to, it was called the E-ring, it's the outside ring. Uh, where there were, uh, you know, some of the very senior folks, and he went and made sure that, you know, people were evacuated, uh, and, you know, and this is thick smoke, fire, heat, and all that. He was ultimately awarded the Soldier's Medal, which is the highest award for heroism not involving direct combat. Wow. Again, this was, this, these were the kind of folks that helped uh, train me when I was still in college. And again, to this day, we're 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 close friends. He when he let when he retired from the army, he became the president of Lackawanna College in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and he's uh, since retired uh, from wow. that. But just a just a phenomenal and, and you know one of the most humble uh, people you'd ever want to meet. Yeah. So let's talk about what uh, at the end of your army career. So you know you, you retired uh, in 2018. Did you have any idea what you wanted to do? Did you have a plan? As many times as I counseled people who worked with me uh, as they were getting ready to retire and told them, you know, make sure you take the time and plan before you get out. And I was guilty of really not taking my own advice. I did some preparation, but uh, not nearly what I should have. You know, I kind of, you know, sprinted through the finish line of my career and didn't, didn't really uh, take the time that I, that I probably should have uh, to prepare. So I was a little behind the eight ball, but ultimately, you know, I had some, had some good opportunities. We had, my family was already here in Kansas city they moved out here in 2011. We were we were in the D.C. area. I was at the Pentagon. I was on my way to Afghanistan. Uh, we had already bought a house here because we knew eventually when it was time to settle down, that's this is where we were going to do it. And so they came out here in 2011. Uh, I, after I left Afghanistan, I came out to Fort Leavenworth, spent a couple years, was getting ready to retire, and uh, never thought in a million years thought I would. Uh, come out on a the you know get promoted again and we had already told our kids hey this is it my daughter started seventh grade when she came out here my son started 10th grade we said you don't have to move again uh, you can finish school here uh, so i wound up spending my last four years on the east coast two in the pentagon and then two down in near the, in the tidewater area newport news virginia 
I knew I was going to stay. I was, you know, we were going to stay here in Kansas City. We love it here. Had some good opportunities, but the the fit didn't seem quite right. So I took some time, and I, then I decided, you know what? What I really want to do is I really want to help others to create great culture in their organizations. I had worked in organizations that had phenomenal culture, and I knew how that made me feel. How productive it made everyone in the organization and the organization as a whole, how I was able to leave work and, you know, have energy to do things with my family, um, to, to be present with them. Uh, and then on the flip side, I've been, I was in several organizations that the, the, the exact opposite was the truth. So I said, you know, if there was a way that I could help companies build great company culture, that's what I want to do. So I started you know, set up my own coaching business, started working on my book. We can talk about it, that later. Wow, it took me a lot longer than I ever thought it would and was a lot harder than I ever thought it would be. I became a student of culture when, when I turned probably about 16 years old, got my first job. It was, a, it was in a department store, uh, Bradley's department store, kind of think of a Target kind of like store in a mall. I noticed it was like two different stores. We had a general manager, but then we had two assistant managers. And one assistant manager was over what we called soft line. So clothes, shoes, domestics, those types of things. And then the other assistant manager was over hard lines, was in charge of hard lines, automotive, home improvement, sporting goods, uh, health and beauty, those types of things. Um, and it was like two completely different stores. And it had nothing to do with what kind of products we sold. I'd look over at the other side of the store and boy, everyone was had smiles on their faces. And, you know, when you saw, when you saw them in the break room or before or after work, they always seemed like they were in a good mood. And our side of the store, it was like there was this cloud, this rain cloud consistently over uh, our side of the store. And I was like, how, how can this be? So as I thought about it and I worked there a couple of years, you know, part-time, to me, it came down to the leaders. It's it's about the two assistant managers. So that's kind of what I thought. That's what drives culture. So I set out to learn as much as I could about leadership, develop my leadership capabilities uh, to the best of my abilities, because I thought that's going to be it. This is what it's all about, leadership. And so I got to my first organization in the Army, and I said, if I exhibit good leadership, then we're going to have great culture in this organization. And it didn't necessarily work out quite like that. So I started looking at other organizations and and, and I've been studying this, you know, not just in organizations I've, I was in, but in other organizations. And I said, you know, there's got to be more to it than that. So, you know, this is a really long way of saying that I've spent literally the last 40 years of my life being a student and a practitioner of developing great culture and organizations. Now, not always successfully. Uh, I've made probably every mistake that there, you could you could possibly make a couple times. Uh, but that's what I wanted to do is was share what I'd learned over those years, you know, to be able to help others. Um, my dream, sort of my cosmic uh, dream would be that we lived in a world where everyone loves where they work. And I know that's only possible if everyone works in an organization that has exceptional culture that matches what they're what they what they're looking for. That's only going to happen if CEOs know how to develop that great culture, that kind of culture. So, um, you know, and and to me, that's that's world changing. If think about if everybody left work every day, and instead of feeling drained, felt energized because they thought they were part of something bigger than themselves, <clears throat> that their work was appreciated and recognized and that they learned something and they enjoyed the people that they worked with, they felt safe. Think about what better members of their community and their families they would be if that were the case. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. I so a couple different things that you said there. I mean, I love that you said having the energy 
to really be a better human being, right? Uh, whether your role is a parent or a spouse or friend, family member. So that I, I've never heard it put that way. And the other thing that really resonated with me also was I, I just don't understand it. You know, like I've worked for like 12, 13 different companies, like, and you know, we have all these best companies to work for lists. Like, why isn't every company the best company to work for? Like, you, you know, like we have to have a list. I get it. It should be the goal of every CEO and executive leadership team to create the best culture they can, but it's just not, it doesn't happen. It's, it, it should be like, you know, that's the default <laughs> mentality. Let's, let's be, let's be doing something, you know, that we're doing something greater than ourselves. And there's a mission and people feel good when they leave. And it, really, you're right. It would make the world a better place if everybody left energized having, because you, you know, you're only as good as your energy level. And if you only get so much per day and you get it drained at your workplace, it's, it's less energy you have for your loved ones. Right. So, yeah, I love that. Outside of the military, Dave, um, and whether you met these people or not, it doesn't matter. But did you have leadership mentors? I did. And they came in various forms. Oftentimes, they were people that I'd met in the community, uh, whether it be through church or or some other activity, who, you know, as I got to know them, I realized that that they were exceptional leaders. Unfortunately, coming up, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, it was much more difficult to uh, to keep track of folks. Oftentimes, I would I would lose contact with uh, some with some of those mentors. Uh, but I tell you, over the last 15, 20 years or so, it's been much easier to uh, uh, to continue to work with mentors and, and get them to you know, people that have already been where you are, maybe not in the army, but, you know, have been leaders in their own right, in their own organizations. And it, again, it could be a business, it could be a nonprofit, it, it could be, um, you know, it could be a place of worship, it could be a church organization or something like that. You know, just ha having that different perspective was always beneficial to me. Yeah, I mean, you, you learn from everybody. I, I, I totally agree with that. And but so you like shortly after you leave the army though, you, you have this idea about writing a book. Was that like always in you or like that you just thought you wanted to write this kind of book on culture? What, what was the driving force behind the book? I think it's always been in me. It's really for the, for this reason is, you know, if I'm going to try to make the world a better place, I've got to be able to share with people what I've learned along the way, the mistakes I've made, so hopefully they won't make it. And I realized for early on, it, it took me about 10 years in the Army to sort of get culture, to realize that, hey, it's more than just the leader. You know, there's, there's other aspects of that. And once I understood that, the next 25 years I took to develop, mature, experiment with, and modify a framework around how to build great company culture. And this goes back to your point is, you know, why isn't every place a great, a great place to, to work? Why isn't every place, you know, you know, all their employees, you know, love working there and their customers and clients, you know, they pick, they treasure work, uh, working with that company. It's what I learned going th through the school of hard knocks for over three decades is that, there are very few places that people will help you understand how to build great company culture. There's tons of books out there about you know what makes up great culture, uh, why we should why it's important, why we should we care. I mean, shoot, I think uh, Ken Blanchard has written or co-written now uh, 50, 60 books. Uh, John Maxwell, I think he's up to 80 or 100 books. And everyone, I read those books. I go, wow, this is all, this is great. These are some great ideas. There's people that tackle an aspect of building great culture, you know, like Simon Sinek, 
But how do you put it all together? How do you actually do it? What I realized, again, over a course of you know, 25, 30 years at least, you've got to have a methodology. You've got to have a concrete way of doing this. That was really the, the purpose behind you know, my writing the book. And as I was researching it, and again, this wasn't just researching the last, you know, two, three years, this is decades of, of research. I realized that everyone talks about great culture. And so my hypothesis is that almost everyone believes culture is important. They want to have great culture, but they don't really know how to do it. And that really played out as I continued my research over the last, you know, say three years, three and a half years, you know, I interview CEOs. First question I always ask them is, is culture important? I've yet to have anyone say no. I think, you know, I think in their heart, I think most everyone believes that. But then I ask them, okay, so what kind of culture are you trying to build in this company? Here's where that funnel starts narrowing very rapidly. The number of CEOs that have a clear descriptive definition of what they want to build, what kind of culture they want to build in their organization, I would say is probably less than one in 10. We'd get a lot of answers like, oh, I want to be inclusive. I want to be, you know, this, that. You're just sort of these platitudes. And I would, I would say, no, 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 no. What does it look, sound, taste, smell, and feel like to work in this company or to work with this company? And you get a lot of, oh, okay. And then once they've worked through that and have a clear description, the next question I was asking is, okay, so how do you do it? They're typically, typical. well, what do you mean? How do I do it? Well, you just described a future state you're trying to achieve in your company. So you must have a strategy to get there, a way to implement that strategy, and a way to measure progress, right? Of the last 200 plus CEOs I've talked to, only three were able to say, oh, here, let me show you how we do it. And that's not to poke anyone in the eye. I spent decades in that state in leading organizations. Some of these CEOs that say, no, I don't really know. We don't really have a way, concrete way to do this. You know, some of them five, 10 minutes prior told me that as a CEO, the most important thing that they did was cultivate their company's culture. And again, not to, not to uh, you know, this is not intended to poke anyone in the eye, and that's really what my book does. So what my book does is it, it talks about, okay, how do you define and describe the, the kind of culture you're trying to build in your organization? And then how do you build a strategy to achieve that? For any With any strategy, one thing that you have to have is some sort of framework. And this is really what the, the part that I've spent the last 20, 25 years working on is What's the framework? What are the, the pillars, the elements of culture you have to address in your strategy? And where I'm at now, and this is something I continue to refine as I learn more, as I talk to uh, people uh, and, and get their thoughts and their ideas, the, the pillars are purpose, the leader, people, process, and communication. And what I do is I'll, I talk to CEOs and we go through each of those pillars and I ask them, each of those elements, I call them, I said, what are the observable behaviors in each of these areas, each of these elements that will move your organization, your company from where it is today to where you're trying to build your culture? What, do, what, what does that future state look like? And then once you've done that, you've developed your strategy, then you've got to You've got to implement that strategy. You've got to be able to, you know, take that strategy, turning in a, turn it into meaningful action to achieve your objectives. In this state, the your desired culture, and you've got to measure progress. And just like you would for if one of your objectives was to increase revenue by twenty five percent this year, well, you're going to have a way to measure that. You're going to have milestones. You're going to review that, and it's not just going to be 
you know, sort of, hey, when we get to the end of the year, we'll figure, you know, we'll see where we are. You know, you're going to have, okay, hey, every month, first Monday of every month, we're going to review all of our, you know, whether you use uh, objectives and key results or KPIs or whatever you want to call them. You know, you're going to review that over time and you're going to see, hey, we're not making the progress we thought we were going to make. So let's take a look at what we're doing and make some adjustments. Well, it's the same thing trying to build a culture. In my book, I talk about the governance. You know, how does a company, no kidding, no kidding, do that? And there's there's some great examples out there. You know, I'm talking about when Kelleher was the CEO of Southwest. As I talk to people that work at Southwest today, it appears to me that they do not have the kind of culture they had uh, when Herb Kelleher was the was the CEO there. So that's really what uh, what the gist of my book is. It's a how-to book. I think one of the reasons it took me so long is because I was trying to write a, a book that was as concise as possible without leaving out some important elements. So, in fact, I just got the formatted draft back last night from the company that's that's doing the production on the book. And it's all told 149 pages. And if you strip out stuff up front, it's probably like hundred and 125, 130 pages, something like that. My, one of my objectives was to write a book that a CEO could read on one domestic plane flight. And each chapter, at the end of each chapter, I give them, I give the reader three things to think about that's going to help, you know, reinforce and, you know, really get them moving. And then after those three things to think about, I give them three action steps to take. So it's, it's almost it has a workbook kind of quality in it. So what I didn't want to do is I didn't want to read a book, write a book rather that someone reads this. Oh, there's some really interesting ideas in here, and they put it on the shelf. My goal was that when someone reads reads that book, and I've already had CEOs that have done this because I I gave I had some beta readers and I had some folks that got a, a final draft. Because they wrote, you know, they they wanted to read it, and they wrote me they wrote me reviews um, for it already. Um, they were like, "Hey, we're already, you know, we're already working on. We're on, you know, we're on chapter three. So, you know, we've already described the culture that we're trying to achieve. Um, you know, the next thing is now now we're developing the strategy. When it comes to business books, again, I think it's a fairly brief book, and I even I even mentioned in chapter one, which is really the introduction, that each one of the chapters in, in this book could be a book on it by itself. You you posted on LinkedIn uh, whether the cover art uh, should be red or blue. I voted blue, <laughs> and I believe that's the color it went with. Not, I, It was just the majority. I'm sure it wasn't just my vote. But I saw the legendary... No, no, it was, no it was you. Everyone else wanted red, but I said, <laughs> no, you know. <laughs> I, I like said it. Jeff wants blue. I'm going with that. Well, it's my high school colors. Uh, we were the well, same. Me too. You know, so we <laughs> blue and white. So it's all good. Um, but I saw on the cover you have the legendary uh, CEO from uh, WD40, Gary Ridge, is, gives like a testimonial quote for the book. I mean, do you know Gary? I do. Yeah. In fact, he wrote the forward for the book. Oh, wow. That uh, that little quote up there is pulled out of the forward. Um, you know, I met him. You know, this was during COVID. I had heard so many things about WD-40 and about their culture that, you know, it, it's it's really astonishing. So Gallup will tell you that currently about one third of every U.S. employee is engaged, you know, meaning that they are actively pursuing the goals of the company at work. At WD-40, that's 93%. You talk about somebody who's, you know, a company that's an outlier in a positive way. It was WD-40. So I was like, well, shoot, I, I need to read his book. So I read his first book. He's written two since then. In fact, is one of his most recent ones he wrote, uh, co-wrote with uh, Ken Blanchard. So I was like, wow, this is really, so I, I, got, I need to talk to him. So this was a unintended good consequence, I think, of COVID. I literally just sent him in a LinkedIn in-mail and said, uh, you know, hey, Hey, Mr. Ridge, you know, my name is Dave Komar, I'm a retired army general. I'm writing a book about culture and I read your book and these are some things that, that stood out to me. Um, you know, is there any way I could 
if you could spare some time, I, I would love to, uh, you know, I'd love to sit down and talk to you about it. Well, he's the very next day, he sent me a note back, said, oh, absolutely. Um, CC'd Holly, his uh, executive assistant, said, uh, get with Holly, we'll, we'll find a time. Uh, so he actually spent about three hours with me. Wow. And I was just like flabbergasted. Uh, and, and one of the things he mentioned, he goes, well, you know, he goes, I have so much more time now because I don't have to travel. He said, in fact, one of the things he does on his calendar so that people don't just fill it up with everything, uh, you know, and he still has time to, to, to think is he actually put on, puts on his calendar, even though he's not traveling, he puts flight time. So that would typically be some, you know, time where, you know, no one's going to be able to interrupt him. No one's going to be able to call him that he's has dedicated to, you know, really thinking about, you know, his organization and how to move that organization forward. But he has, he, he just retired in last December after I think he, about 25 years, he was the CEO and the chairman of WD-40. And, you know, you think about what, you know, what WD-40 has, has done with their brand and their success over the last 25 or 30 years, I would say it's, it's, you know, one of the most recognized, you know, you, you show that can of WD-40, it's, uh, I think, one of the most recognizable things. Everyone in the world knows what that is. And it's oil in a can. Exactly. It's not anything sexy. They, they have a great origin story that I, I won't take your, your time up here. But the very, very short story is, is there was a corrosion in one of the space programs. I can't remember which one it was. They were trying to develop a formula that would solve that corrosion problem. And they failed 39 times. And the 40th time was successful. And that's why it's WD-40. Wow. Nice. Nice. I, I do have to say this one thing, because I tell you, Gary's a phenomenal guy. Um, and I, I just, in fact, I attended a culture summit, a culture forum out at the end of October in San Diego that, that he was uh, helping host. But one of the things that impresses me the most is, and I talk about this in, in my book, nobody makes mistakes at WD-40. They have learning moments. And those learning moments can be positive or they could be negative. As much as people like to say, well, you know, our, our leadership's really good about not shooting the messenger and, you know, and that's great. If that's in fact the case, that's, that's fantastic. What they do at WD-40 company is they actually celebrate people who have had learning moments, even, even negative learning moments, um, and encourage them to share that with others so that other folks can learn from, from what's happening. Um, and, uh, and, and I, I tell you, having now you know spent some time in person with Gary, uh, he's he's all real. Yeah, that's that's phenomenal. I love that, and that might lead into the question I'm going to ask you next because I I love helping two groups of people on this podcast. One is that recent college graduate that is now looking for their first professional job. You know, uh, what advice would you have for them, Dave, as they begin their professional career journey? Well, my first piece of advice is join the military. And I know that's not for everyone. Not everyone has the proclivity or the desire to do that. But I tell you, it's one experience that, you know, I don't have the statistics to support it, but I talked over my, you know, the last 30, 40 years, I've talked to a lot of folks, uh, not in the military, not in the military. And I almost never run into someone who says that they regret the time they spent in the military. In fact, usually the opposite, like, oh, you know, I, I should have stayed. I, I could be retired now, or, you know, I, I, I always think back fondly at that time. But if they're not going to do that, my advice to them is to not be so worried about the type of work that they find. Now I know if someone's you know just got their bachelor's degree in electrical engineering or chemical engineering or something, um, you know they're going to want to work in that. So they can get their 
you know, become professional engineer certified. They've got some gates for that. I understand that. But in, in general, think more about the kind of company that you're working for. What is, what is their, what is that company's culture like? Because it doesn't matter what it is you want to do. If you find a job in a company that you just hate working there, you're not going to learn very much um, about the only thing you're going to wind up taking away for the rest of your career are some examples of how not to do things as opposed to how to do things. Spend some research. I, I, I speak to groups of people that are transitioning from one career or one position to another. Um, I was talking to a, a very large group in Nashville and I said, you know, do some research, go online, you know, you know, you can go, okay, I get it, Glassdoor, people are typically more inclined to go on there if they have a negative experience, a positive experience, I get that. But, hey, you know, if it's a brick and mortar work, people are either, everyone's in the, in the facility or they work hybrid, you know what, go park in their parking lot at 7.30 in the morning. And see what people look like. What ex what's the expression on their face when they're walking into work? Are they, you know, you know, are they kind of stepping lightly and and like they're they're can't wait to get in there and interact with the other people they work with and 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 do their you know perform their tasks? Um, or are they just kind of dragging in there and do the same thing in the evening when people are leaving the office? or the, you know, whatever the facility is, are people talking to each other? Are they joking with each other? Is everyone just got their head down going to the car saying, Oh my gosh, thank goodness. It's thank goodness. <laughs> this is over until tomorrow. Yeah. So just, you know, do some investigation and be more concerned about the kind of company you work for. I've interviewed over 60 people on the podcast uh, to date and that has never been mentioned, but I love that. That is because that's, that's telling in a lot of ways. So uh, thank you for that, Dave. The other group um, as people, you know, become leaders, at least from a org chart standpoint, now they're responsible for a team of people. What advice uh, would you give them as they, begin their leadership journey? Well, hopefully they have already in preparation for becoming a leader in an organization. Hopefully they've already been educating themselves, that they've been observing those people in the organization uh, that, are, that are in leadership positions, identifying behaviors that uh, they think they would like to also exhibit because it has a positive impact on the organization that they're observing behaviors in other leaders that they don't want to emulate because they're having a, it's having a negative impact on the organization. And then that you write down, you know, what is your leadership philosophy? What's important to you? And share that with people. When you go, you know, when you go into that position, share that with people and, and you've got to be vulnerable and say, Hey, uh, if I'm not doing these things, I need to know because this is what I want to behaviors I want to be exhibiting. You know, and Harry Campbell talks about this in one in one of his books quite a bit. You know, he's got I don't know what this was it the seven words or seven terms or something. In fact, you can even go to Harry Campbell's webpage and there's a survey you can send out to people you know, and it's they will then uh, choose descriptors and it'll send you back. Hey, these are the most common descriptors that were given to you. Um, it's very, you know, very similar to that. So, you know, it's got to be about learning and growth, not just so that you can be a better leader, but that you can do a better job leading the people whom you've been charged with leading. Yeah, totally great. Uh, yeah, I've done that seven word exercise that Harry uh, has. So it's a, it is it is great. And I, I tell all the recent college graduates that come to me for career advice to do that exercise because it definitely gives you some uh, perspective on yourself that you wouldn't probably have. Um, uh, Dave, your book is uh, called uh, Conquer Your Culture. Uh, when, when is the publication date? Well, um. <laughs> I just literally uh, last night approved the the cover design, 
so the production is going through. I think that it will probably launch somewhere around mid-February. I'll be posting on on my LinkedIn uh, updates as it, as it goes along. But again, boy, this is this is the first book I've ever written. I decided to self-publish because I wanted to have 100% control over the content. This this book is very much uh, my life's work. I didn't want someone else to be able to you know be able to say, "No, nah, we're not going to include that story," or nah, "We're not going to we're going to take this chapter out," or something like that. Or uh, so you know, I don't know if that's uh, if that's vanity or what, but uh, I just wanted to have that uh, have that control. Plus, it's nice if you self publish next year or two years from now when I write put out a second edition, I can do that. I don't have to. I don't have to you know, ask mother, may I to anyone. Right. Right. I love that strategy. So, so, so it's, but it's, uh, um, it's been a, I tell you, it's been an experience. That's, that's one of the reasons there's books about writing books. Right. Because yeah. there's a lot to, there's a lot to learn and, and just doing the, just the writing part, which I thought was going to be about 80 or 90% of it is probably turned out to be about 50% of it. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to read the book when it comes out. I love, I love culture. You know, I could talk about culture all day long. Uh, I, I love that your focus, your consulting and speaking uh, as well as the book focuses on the CEOs because it, it, the culture has to start there. Um, you know, great ones at least have to start there. So um, yeah, I'm excited to see, uh, you know, uh, your, your business grow and uh, thank you for coming on the corporate couch today. No, I sure, I sure appreciate it. You know, and I'd, you know, I'd, I'd love to offer all of your listeners a free consultation if, if they would be interested. Um, they can reach me at on on the website at eda inc inc dot io. Great, yeah, and I'll put that in the episode notes too, so the the link will be there when uh, when they uh, listen to your uh, great story. So, thanks again, Dave. Uh, have a happy holiday. Well, thank you. You as well. Another great conversation with one of the leaders that we've talked to that uh, you know served in the military. Uh, Dave served 31 years in the Army. Just incredible leadership uh, experiences there. I mean, I could talk about that. You know, it's all about culture. And he, you know, he retired in 2019 after 31 years. And you know, I said, why focus on culture, you know, and did you have a plan when you retired? He said, no, even though I tell people they need to have a plan, <laughs> I didn't have a plan. And how he talked about when he was 16 and he worked at um, Bradley's department store, which was a Northeast uh, department store. And he said there was a general manager of the store and then there was a manager of the soft lines and a manager of the hard lines. I forget which one he worked for, but he worked for the bad He worked manager. for the other one, whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and he said, the, we, had, we hated our jobs, hated it. And the opposite department loved working there. And, he, and at 16, he, and he, he made the decision or made the observation, well, it's all about leadership. The leadership creates the culture. Mm -hmm. And I experienced that with a couple of my companies one was Eritano. It was a, every department, functional area, R&D and accounting, finance, sales and marketing, HR and administrative, all had different cultures. It was kind of a strange thing, but it, it makes sense because it's the leadership under those functional areas that drive the culture. The, the leadership is the thing. It, it's, it's like leadership uh, trickles down, right? It's you don't have to yes. believe in gravity for it to affect everything. Yeah, and then he, he said, you know, you made an entire career over 40 years, 31 years in the military, being a lifelong little, uh, learner of how to develop a great culture. And he said, I made mistakes, of course. but I." So he writes a book on it because he wants to have a framework with all his mm -hmm. ideas. And, you know, the crazy stuff was, you know, his research, you know, we uh, interviewed a hundred CEOs and only 10% even had a description of the culture they wanted. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's crazy in itself. Like, okay. I, Cause it's like uh, motherhood, apple pie, you know, in the mm -hmm. old days, Chevrolet, you know, everybody believes in that. Um, 
you know, it's like everybody, every company wants a great culture. No one argues with that. And he said 100% of the people he interviewed, you know, but only 10% of the CEOs could describe what that culture would look like. And then the ones that did, another survey, two of 300 had any idea of how to implement the culture they wanted to have. Mm-hmm. So his book is, you know, which will come out in late February, I believe is the launch date, is all about the framework. So I, I just thought it was phenomenal. Yeah, it was a great interview. I, I enjoyed every minute of it. It was amazing. You know, when, one of the things that it did with me is it uh, reminded me back to my uh, days as a senior in high school. I remember that uh, when, when I was a senior in high school, a Army recruiter came to uh, give our the senior class an aptitude test, if you will, and, and to give a big speech on uh, everybody ought to join the Army right now. Uh, if you want to feel sorry for somebody, feel sorry for an Army recruiter in 1974. And I, I genuinely felt sorry for the guy because, uh, you know, the, the war was winding down, uh, the draft was over, so we knew we were all uh, safe from the draft. And there wasn't anybody in my whole high school class that wanted to be talking to an Army recruiter. Matter of fact, I can't name one person in my high school class of 110 people that joined the armed forces of, of any kind. But one of the things that uh, struck me when he was giving his little speech was he said, you know, the Army is an organization of process. And uh, there is a right way to do things and a wrong way and the Army way. And uh, that's one of the things that uh, Dave brought out uh, in his talk was he was talking about that everything in the Army does is a deliberate process. And why in the world can't we have those kind of deliberate processes in everything that we, uh, that we do? So not only is he trying to in, instill a culture but also the importance of processes within organizations. And I love listening to stories about 9-11. That, that's just kind of a, a thing with me. I don't, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit morbid or something, but uh, anybody that was actually there and went through it and was actually in the Pentagon when the, when the planes hit, uh, it's, it's just, I'm just enthralled by listening to the stories like that. It's a, uh, it was an amazing interview all the way around. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because this is our third guest uh, on the podcast. It was uh, Eastman McGovern uh, would have been in, in one of the World Trade Towers on 9-11 and had a doctor's appointment. He would have, he would have died. All, all people in this company uh, that were there passed that day on 9-11. Pamela Norton should have been there. Um, uh, for her company at the time, and she was ousted. So she, uh, by the acquiring company, and now, you know, uh, Dave was in the Pentagon when it all shook down. You know, when the, you know, it was, yeah, just unbelievable. It's amazing stories. Yeah. Well, what leadership advice would you want to give our great listeners today, Joe? Well, uh, sticking in the same vein, uh, we are going to go to that great philosopher named John Wayne. And John Wayne one time said, life is hard, but life is harder if you're stupid. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.